Would you join me now in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? And today, let's talk about disputes. As you're going to see today, this is a very practical passage, and we're going to ask for the Lord's help in helping us to apply this to ourselves. Well, I'm not proud of what I'm about to tell you next. I, I was looking on uh, Amazon's Prime video the other day to look for a, a show to watch, and I, I saw a show called Judy Justice, and I thought, oh, that's, that's Judge Judy. I haven't seen Judge Judy in a long time, and, and so I clicked it to watch it, and uh, I liked it. I liked it, and I'm embarrassed to tell you that because you probably thought your pastor was a little more intellectual than that, that maybe I'd be on Masterpiece Theater or something, but here I was, Judge Judy, and if you've never seen Judge Judy, she's a fiery little judge, and she, uh, she's a small claims judge. No case comes to her court that's over $10,000. That's, that's what she can award at maximum. And so uh, it's good. It's a 20-minute episode, so you're not making a big time commitment. But here's what I've liked about it. There is indeed justice given. She dispenses justice in her own little biting style sometimes. But <laughs> she gives justice. Somebody who's been wronged, she makes them whole by giving good judgment. And somebody who has been maybe devious, she can actually penalize them by awarding money from that one to the innocent aggrieved party. So I find that that justice in 20 minute increments, that's just satisfying. But I've also found it very informative. And so I'll enjoy watching it because one thing I've learned is this, you should document everything. If you have any kind of agreement with somebody, and certainly if any property exchanges hands, uh, get it in writing. Even a text message will do where you just explain this. Uh, so many times the issue has been, whether, was that a gift or was that a loan? And it, with it not being documented, you end up in court. And so practical things like that. So while entertaining and satisfying, sometimes though, it's sad. And what's sad is you'll see family members going to court against each other, even there on Judge Judy. You'll, you'll see a mother and a daughter maybe at court with each other, or maybe uh, uh, two siblings there at court, maybe over $300 or $1,000. It's all sad. So the dysfunction of the family spilling out into court. Well, that's very relevant to our text. In 1 Corinthians 6, we have Paul. He's upset. He's alarmed that the church in Corinth, they're having problems that they can't resolve themselves. This is showing up in the secular courts there in first century Corinth. And so let's see what the Holy Spirit inspires him to write regarding that problem in the church at Corinth. Chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So here the church at Corinth, instead of 
pointing a watching world to the Savior they need and to the new life that Jesus offers, they're dragging each other into court before these very unbelievers. They're failing to live up to the high calling they have now in Christ. They're taking their interpersonal legal matters to be judged by the very people who need to be hearing the gospel from them. It's an embarrassment. Paul said it's a shame. And do you know these types of lawsuits between believers still happen to this day? That's first century, but here in our day, we see the same kinds of things. In fact, it was just a couple of years ago, members in a large church in Northern Virginia took the leaders of that church to court, or at least they filed a lawsuit against the leaders. And you want to know why they did this? Why would members sue the leaders? Because of the elder election process in the church. That's an embarrassment. That, that should never happen. Why would believer take believer to court over a church matter to the courts? And that was very recent, even in our own state. Last year, a prominent pastor sued another ministry leader in the nation over slander, only later to withdraw the lawsuit. But when I heard about that lawsuit, I'm thinking, how, how could you do this, pastor? This is a 1 Corinthians 6 issue. Why would you do that? I'm grateful he came to that understanding, I guess, and that's why he pulled it back. So here we have this context of believer suing believer and going to court. And remember last time, we saw how Paul told the church at Corinth they need to do a better job of judging within the church, particularly about sin issues in the church. Remember, Paul said, God will judge those outside the church, but you must judge inside the church. They need to do a better job of judging sin in the church. But here he tells them you need to do a better job of judging in terms of disputes, just disagreements within the church. You have to do a better job at that. So let's talk about three failures in the Corinthian church on this matter so that we would avoid those same errors. So again, we have no pride here like we could, we could be, we're better than the Corinthians, but let's learn from their mistakes. First of all, Paul points out that they're failing at fellowship. The church at Corinth has many problems, and here he points out they're failing at fellowship. Let's look again at some of these verses. Verse 1 again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Let's skip down to verse 7 again. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And then verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So, so unhealthy was the church at Corinth. They were known for their divisions within. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They were already divided within. But now their divisions are spilling over even into the courts. This is a messed up church. Can you imagine this? Paul talks about lawsuits. Did you notice? Plural. If we had one lawsuit in the church between believers, we'd, we'd be like, but that's, that's, that's too bad. And that would be a bit embarrassing. But there were at least two lawsuits here because he uses plural. Could have been more than that. Scholars tell us likely these were property matters, civil matters. Maybe the wealthier members of the church were taking each other into court. But it was a problem. Paul says these are trivial matters. Did you notice verse 3? Verse, verse 2. Yeah, verse 3, verse 2. Also, these are matters pertaining to this life. So the first shame is that Paul says you're defrauding each other. That should not happen among God's people. And then the other shame is they can't find resolution themselves. They're having to go among unbelievers in the secular court system. So again, a very practical passage. So let's pause even here now for some application for ourselves. First of all, let me ask this. Are you at odds 
with somebody else? In particular, are you at odds with somebody else in the church? And to my knowledge, nobody has one of these cases out in the courts, but maybe there's something that you have against another brother or you feel like they have against you. Let's ask it this way. Have you hurt someone in the church family? Though I'm not aware of anything like this, but have you cheated somebody else in the church? Have you, have you made a promise to somebody? You owe somebody something and you haven't made good on what you owe somebody else in the church. Do you have anything like that that comes to mind? And if so, very simply, make it right with that person. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't need anybody to coerce you to do the right thing. If there's something you owe somebody else, some arrangement, and you know you haven't made good on it, you need to work to resolve that problem. And here in the body of Christ, we need to be people who are inclined to give grace in situations like that, to be inclined to be forgiving, sometimes even to give up the offense. This is vital to the church. Our hearts are always to be in one accord, always. Do you remember Ephesians 4? We're told in the church, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We're to be diligent about our unity in it. And that shows up in the way we care for one another. So can I encourage you to apply this teaching in the life of the church? But as a part of that, can you also apply this into your home as well? So what's an arena where one believer might take another believer to court? Where do we see this more common, commonly than in these kind of other disputes? The place we can see it sometimes is in marriage and in divorce. And of course, scripturally, there, there can be grounds for a divorce. So adultery is one of those cases where a divorce can be sought. And abandonment, we're going to see when we get deeper into 1 Corinthians, some look at abuse as a type of abandonment. So there can be these extreme situations where two believers might find themselves in court. But I think as we apply chapter 6 here, we shouldn't be there for lesser reasons. And so if you're in a Christian marriage, you have a, a Christian husband, Christian wife, and you run into difficulty like every couple runs into challenges, you have every motivation to work to heal the relationship, every motivation to try to improve the relationship. And if for no other reason, taking to heart here this chapter, I, wanna, I want us to heal this for the sake of the gospel. I don't want us as two believers to have to go out into the secular courts, they don't know Christ, for them to resolve what I think we could resolve, barring one of these extreme cases that we were talking about here. So what resources do we have as believers where we should be able to normally get along well together? Well, we have the Holy Spirit, right? So when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and it begins to make changes in you. Changes you couldn't do on your own. Remember famously in Galatians 5, we read about the fruit of the Spirit. So as you yield as a Christian to the Spirit, not just that he's in you, but you, you're yielding to him and he's reigning in you, that he produces his fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the, the, the very qualities we need in our relationships in the church. But listen, we're applying for the home for just a moment. In your home, we want that fruit in our marriages and there that is available to us. We have the word of God. All this instruction on how we are to carry out these relationships. We have that. We also in the church have biblical counsel. So you run into an impasse, maybe even in your home or in a relationship in the church, you have people that you can go to to ask for help from friends. 
We have people in church actually who've offered themselves, when we talk about, about marriage difficulties, there are some who would say, listen, we're willing to be marriage mentors for somebody. And they've told me, if you ever run into a couple, they're having a little bit of struggle and they could use mentors, we'd be happy to meet with them. And of course, we do have pastors who are willing to counsel. We have our counseling ministry ready to do that. One of my favorite occasions, and, and if you're in the room, I don't remember exactly which couple this was. That's how my brain works. But it was a number of years ago, I had a couple sit down with me uh, having a little issue in their marriage. And again, I don't even remember what that was. And they met with me and we had a nice visit for about an hour. And then the plan was they were going to let me know when they wanted to reschedule. And months go by. I'd forgotten I'd even met with them because it was probably a year later. The couple resurfaced and said, you know, hey, we thought we'd better tell you why we didn't come back. And they said, because things got better. You know, we just had that one little tune up. And we didn't, we didn't need to come back. Oh, no, that's just wonderful. It's wonderful to hear that. Sometimes a person, that's, a couple might just need that. So if that's you, like, you know what? We're, we're not quite on the same page. Let's just have a little tune-up. So we want to have every motivation to care well for one another in the church and in the home. Forgive one another, we're taught in the scriptures. Believers are to be patient with one another, to love one another, to serve one another. But I realize it takes two, doesn't it? And here's our exhortation this morning from our text. It takes two, but let's be the one. We can't control what the other person does, but let's be the one. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Or Hebrews 12, 14, the scripture says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Or Matthew 5, 25, we're told this, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way. Or how about Jesus as he talks about how this impacts our worship if we're estranged for one another. Matthew 5, 24. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And so believer, this applies to every relationship. You and I want to be those in relationships as peacemakers. Certainly applies in the church here, certainly applies even in our Christian homes. So it was a shame for the church at Corinth that they were failing at fellowship. But here's another shame, they're lacking in wisdom. Failing at fellowship, lacking in wisdom. This takes us back into verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Like the previous issue we saw last week, there was immorality in the church. And Paul was, he was aghast at that, but he was also very upset that the church wasn't addressing it. And here we have a similar situation. He's upset that there are lawsuits happening between believers in the church. And now he's shocked that they can't settle those within the church. Where is your wisdom? One commentator said it this way, that these Corinthians were flaunting their failures before the world. And so Paul really essentially is asking Hey, where is all that wisdom you Corinthians have been bragging about? In these early chapters of 1 Corinthians, we've been hearing them talking about how proud they are and Paul's having to put them back in their place. They're proud in all the worldly sense. And Paul now really shames them with his words. Isn't there somebody there with all your talk of wisdom wise enough to settle these 
disputes. And then notice Paul lifts their eyes up to a glorious role that believers are going to have at the end. He asked the question twice, or do you not know? And did you catch what he asked them? Don't, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then he followed up. Do you not know that we will judge angels? And I imagine there's some in the room who went, no, I did not know that. I had no idea that. I remember when I was reading this for the first time, you're like, oh, I, I don't think I knew that. And so today, let's talk about that for just a moment, uh, that we have this high role somehow in the future as God's redeemed people in some way, taking part in ruling with Christ, in some part, even judging the world, in some way, judging even angels. We presume he's referring to fallen angels. But in all honesty, we don't know exactly what that looks like. And so Paul doesn't elaborate either. He says, do you not know that that's the case? And his point is, if that's the case for your future in the present, in these more trivial matters, you ought to be able to handle it. But let's just talk for a moment. What might this look like as we, in some sense, rule, reign with Christ, and even have a part in the judgment of others? Well, Jesus gives a glimpse of this in Matthew 19, 27. We're going to look at a, a few examples here. Matthew 19, 27 and 28. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So at least to the 12, he says, you guys are going to be reigning with me, judging with me over the tribes of Israel. Daniel speaks this way in Daniel 7, 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Or Revelation 2, 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Or Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So just echoes of this truth. Do you not know that saints will judge the world? All right, now we know. We don't know how it's going to work, but Lord, we trust you. That's an amazing reality. Do you not know that we're going to judge angels? In some sense, the Lord says we're going to have that role in some way. That is amazing. So if that is the case... Can we not in the here and now with the spirit of God and the word of God and the love of God, can we not handle interpersonal matters like peacemakers in the church? And so what he's telling us is we have all wisdom available if we will use it to settle our problems. So James 1 5 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. We have the Lord. He wants to give us his wisdom. And we have so much of that wisdom already for us in the word of God. So therefore this, that you and I should understand that issues of, of justice, we should understand issues of justice better than anybody else. 
because we've experienced the grace of God, we have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. When it comes to issues of justice, who better than God's people to be able to dispense justice? And as believers in Christ, we should understand issues of right and wrong better than anybody else on the planet. We should be the most honest and fair and reasonable people on the earth. We should be able to help people settle disputes. We should be the least corrupt people in all the earth. We should be the people that are the, the least likely to move into favoritism. We should be people of justice. But here are these Corinthians lacking in spiritual maturity. They can't even handle their small squabbles within the church. It's a shame, Paul says, that you have these lawsuits, plural. It's a shame you don't have wisdom to settle the troubles that come up within the congregation. Everything was backwards. It was a shame. And so you and I, we should understand who we are in Christ and who we're going to become in Christ when we're glorified. That should give us a mindset where we rise above pettiness. We're thinking grand thoughts of the kingdom of God and, and the great commission getting the gospel out. It should cause us to handle our smaller issues in better perspective. But also understand we have everything we need to be able to bring about clarity of mind and unity of purpose in the church. So the Corinthians, though, failing at fellowship, lacking in wisdom, and as a result, damaging their testimony. They're damaging their testimony. Back to verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Did you notice here? Paul says it would be better to just go ahead and be defrauded than to initiate and take another brother in Christ, another church member to the secular courts. Why is this so? Because it's sinning against God's other children when we defraud one another, when we attack one another. But I believe the testimony of the church is in view here. So why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be wrong than to embarrass the name of Christ out in the court system? You see, Paul's upset about this. You're taking these matters before the unrighteous. This is a bad reflection on the faith. So think about in first century Corinth. Christianity is new on the earth. Hasn't been around long. Jesus, not too many years earlier, crucified, raised, ascended to heaven. Now we have churches being planted across the Roman Empire. And here in Corinth, the church had only existed about four or five years at the time Paul is writing this letter. So Christianity's new. People are becoming aware of what Christianity is. What a shame to learn of Christianity in the courts. So what is this new faith? You can imagine the citizens. What is this new faith? Well, we know this. There's, there's trouble in this thing called a church. These people are suing one another. They, they can't get along with one another. And what a, what a bad testimony. You and I know that many people form their opinion of Christ by what they see in his followers. That's a huge responsibility. You and I, our lives should adorn the gospel rather than detract from the gospel. And here are these Corinthians with all their problems. They're beloved of God, genuinely have been saved. Paul speaks to them like believers, but he is definitely rebuking them for this bad testimony in the culture. And you know, you and I, again, we feel the weight of that responsibility to represent Christ well, to show the new life that he's given us with all of our problems and failures, but to show people this is real and that Jesus is who they need. Have you ever had trouble pulling for a team because of the fans of that team? You know, you're like, I would, you, you got two teams playing, neither one of them is your team. You're trying to figure out who to pull for and you go, ah, I just can't pull for that team. 
because the fan base is just maybe, in your estimation, obnoxious. And I'm not going to name any names. Uh, I have in hallway conversations before, if you're, if you're curious. But, uh, because here, if you pull for that team, you're a great example for the team. You, you're the one that help, makes me think, well, maybe I can because of so-and-so church member. They pull for them. But, but it wouldn't be a shame if people are thinking about Christ. You know, I think I, I know I need something other than what I have. And I've heard of Jesus and he seems wonderful. But, but wouldn't it be a shame if they thought, but it's those Christians. I've met them. They are just difficult to get along with. They're irreconcilable. They're some of the angriest people. We don't want to reflect poorly on Christ like that. Better to be wronged. Better to be defrauded than to take matters like that and embarrass the name of Christ. So let's come now to some practical matters here because this is an interesting passage and it's heavily uh, a topic where we think about application. What would I do if I were in a situation like this? Well, let's talk about what this passage does not say. First of all, the courts are not wrong to use. So we wouldn't want to look at this and go, well, there's never then a legitimate occasion for somebody to sue another. We're not supposed to sue each other in the church and all those one another's. We don't have sue one another, but when it comes to there are real grievances that can happen, you can truly be wronged out in the culture. It does not mean that you could not use the court system to be relieved of some injustice done to you. So that's, this is not a statement that you can't use the courts. It's just we have to be very thoughtful. We're not to be suing other believers. Second thing, as we think about application, criminal matters should go to the courts. So when we talk about interpersonal disagreements and misunderstandings and, and these types of matters, we're, we're going to handle those. We should be able to handle those here. But let's just say, for example, have, have you been assaulted? If you've been assaulted by somebody, you call the police. We have in the scriptures teaching about the governing authorities and God has instituted the governing authorities. And there's a jurisdiction there. If somebody assaults you, you're calling 911, whether in the church or whether in your home you're calling the authorities. And if you come to us with that, we'll say, you, you really should call the police. We'll walk with you through that as your brothers and sisters, but you need the authorities for that. That's the realm for, for handling that. Likewise, with any type of abuse, if you've been abused by somebody in the church, that's a call to the authorities and you can let us know too. And again, we'll love you, shepherd you through that. And likewise, if you experience abuse in your home, you go to the police. Well, he's a believer. You go to the police with that. That can go into the court system. And we, again, as a church family, will walk with you through that. But how about this? So Paul seems to say the church ought to be able to handle these disputes. And so what would that look like if somebody said, we, we're at odds with one another. We can't figure it out. What do we do? So I think Matthew 18 applies here. Remember, Jesus talks about that. And, and we talked about it last time in the context of church discipline. But here's a matter. You and another brother or sister in the church, you, you're at odds over something. And yes, you should go one-on-one -on -one to each other, try to resolve the matter. Even if it's some kind of property dispute or something, some arrangement you have, try to work it out amongst yourself. But if you can't and you feel like a real wrong has been done to you, then you could seek another brother or sister. And so you could say to your friend, your fellow church member, look, I, we're not seeing out of here. I really feel like I'm being wronged here. Is it okay if we bring somebody in to sit with us, maybe help us come to a better understanding here? Because you think you're right. I think I'm right. Could we get somebody to help us here? And then, of course, if that doesn't work, then you could seek one of the leaders of the church to help with that. And, and maybe it will be one of those occasions where just a, a third party outside of that could help bring clarity and we come up with a win-win. But what would we do if we came up with something that's significant? Maybe you're in a large financial arrangement with another member of the church and 
What would we do? It's a complicated case, and there are laws involved here. Well, one of the things you could do is you could seek Christian arbitration. Even our church's attorney who helps us with our documents, this is what he would encourage is when believers are at odds, rather than take that into the secular courts, you could seek Christian arbitration. And these people are skilled and they're all about trying to get a fair, just resolution for you. And you can bring that. Two believers can agree, look, we'll we'll be bound by Christian arbitration to settle this dispute. And that way the name of Christ is not embarrassed out in the culture, but, but we get real justice here and make sure the right decision is made practical matters here. But let's close with this one. We're talking about court. As we apply it to ourselves, we think about what would it be like if I had something against somebody else. But let's just close reminding ourselves that all of us have a court date coming. And when we sit, or we stand rather, in judgment before the one who sits in judgment, you and I are not going to be there as a prosecutor. We're not going to be there as the plaintiff on our day of judgment. We'll be there as a defendant with lots of guilt, immeasurable guilt. We sang about it earlier. We have so many sins. And so we all have a date of judgment. Here's the good news. You can know the judge today. Jesus is the one. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And how wonderful to know on that day of judgment, when you give an evaluation, when your life is evaluated, to know in that moment, oh, I know him. I can imagine standing before Jesus, dropping to my face in awe of his greatness. How awesome fearful in that sense, but at the same time, the mixture of joy going, oh, but I know him. I know my judge. He saved me of all my sins. The promises of scripture are true. I've walked with him now for decades to be in his presence. I know this is going to work out just fine because his blood has atoned for all my sins. You need a savior. Yes, for today. Yes, through this very, very difficult life, but there is a judgment coming. You need to be saved on that day when you, when you stand before a righteous, perfect judge who can sentence you, you can know him. And listen, this, it's Jesus's idea to be so merciful as we talked about. It's his nature. He wants to forgive you. The gospel is his idea to make a way for all your sins to be forgiven, where you can, you can pass safely through the judgment into his home for everlasting life. Oh, but you don't want the opposite to be true. You don't want to on that day of judgment Stand there before the Lord and he say, I never knew you. The one that you rejected time and time and time again, you don't want to face him in judgment, having rejected him as savior. So today, would you, would you accept his mercy? Would you accept his grace? The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, saved now, enjoying him now, but saved on that day of judgment. Would you trust in Jesus today? Let's pray together. God, thank you for the practical matters that we've considered here in the text. We do pray for just continued warm, healthy, thriving relationships within the church. Lord, not just being even merely good acquaintances, but Lord, help us to love well here in the church. And certainly, Lord, never to defraud one another, cheat one another. And so, God, would you you grow us in greater and greater health here? Then, Lord, we think about that day. Yeah, it's cool to think about judging angels, whatever that means, being a part of judging the world. But Lord, for a moment, we, we're so grateful we have you to, to have rescued us from the judgment to come where we won't have to be condemned because of our sins, but you've already washed us clean. We stand righteous because of you. And now we, we already know that we have a home for us in heaven. I pray for those who don't have that assurance that today they'll trust in you, turning from their sins, trusting in you as Savior and Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.